Our text this evening is Ezra chapter 1 as we turn to a new book of the Bible. We're looking at the book of Ezra. Ezra is about the first third of the way into your Bible. It's Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then Job and the Psalms. So it is right after Chronicles too. That's right. It's a part of the history as Israel returns back to the land. This evening we'll be looking at chapter 1. So if you would please give attention to God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative. Ezra, chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the... The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jer- that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in charge of Mithridath the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar the prince of Judah. This was the number of them. Thirty basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that You would meet with us, or this evening, excuse me, Lord, this evening that You would meet with us that you would bless us from your word. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Ezra is a very interesting book in several respects. The first and most obvious thing is that Ezra himself does not even appear until chapter 7. The first six chapters are events that occur a generation before Ezra under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Another thing that is interesting about Ezra, it is again one of these Bible books that intersects 
with the vast sweep of history that we know. And we'll look at that in a moment. But it is also the fulfillment of the promise of God by his prophets. Ezra is a book that gives us hope. Hope when we look around and see a world and a church that is filled with sin and unfaithfulness. Ezra reminds us that in spite of that, the Lord is always faithful. And so what I would like us to see briefly this evening are three things. First, we'll look at the beginning of Ezra as a story where we are small. It's a story of the world, and perhaps you look at this as well. You look out and you see, and you say, I'm very small. I can't really change events. But this is also a story where God is big. We may be small, but God is big. And then finally, it is a story where promises are kept. Well, let's begin then with this story, which is a part of the grand sweep of history. There is a grand beginning to this story that has gone bad. From the time of the patriarchs, when God called out Abraham for his purpose and all of the struggles that we have been seeing as we go through the book of Genesis, down through the period of slavery in Egypt, and how God redeemed his people from what was then the most powerful kingdom in the world, easily defeating it by the power of His might. And as the Israelites came back into their land, how God continues to redeem them as they sin and fall under judgment. And He redeems them by means of the judges. And then, of course, the great kingdom is set up under David the king. And Solomon, his son, reigns in wealth and wisdom and majesty. And the capstone to all of this is that great temple that is constructed, the temple that is a place of holiness and of brilliance. It is said that as the sun shone off the gold of the roof of the temple, it could be blinding for miles. The Israelites, on the top of the world, as it were, but as so often happens, they wandered. They gave in to pride and rebellion against God. And the Lord did not forget His Word. And so in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was dragged away by one of the powerful kingdoms of that day, Assyria. The northern kingdom to be heard from no more. Some had fled from the northern kingdom then and before to live in Judah. But now the northern kingdom is known as the Lost Ten Tribes. The southern kingdom did not fare much better. Just a hundred years later, Babylon came on the scene and meted out God's judgment upon Judah for its unfaithfulness. Beginning in 605 B.C., Jerusalem was besieged and the first captives were carried off. And then in 587 B.C., all came to an end. Every single bit of material that could burn in the temple was burnt. The temple was completely destroyed. It was not like, you know, we see now pictures in the news or on the Internet of these abandoned homes that are kind of ramshackle and you can go in and perhaps sometimes there's even people squatting there and living there. Not so the temple. It was raised to the ground. It had to be built completely 
anew. God, in His wrath and judgment, had destroyed the temple and had carried off the people of Judah to Babylon. Perhaps the saddest instance of this that hits home is that the very last king of Judah, Zedekiah, rebelled against Babylon, thought he could get away with his wickedness, and when Jerusalem was besieged and the gates were broken down, he escaped with some men and was caught. And they dragged him before the Babylonian king. And before his very eyes, they killed his sons. That was the last thing he saw because then they blinded him. And they dragged him off to Babylon in chains. This is something that has gone very badly. And in the background of this, there is the grand sweep of history, the great empires of Assyria and of Babylon and of Persia. And that's where we are now. The king of Persia, Cyrus, began in a small province. Persia wasn't even a kingdom. It was a province of the media, the the empire of the Medes. But through great deeds of conquest, Cyrus destroyed many a kingdom. He, He took over the kingdom of the Medes. He destroyed the kingdom of Croesus in Turkey, the kingdom of Lydia. Croesus, who was known for going to the oracle at Delphi, and the oracle told him that he would destroy a kingdom. And because of this, he became overconfident and attacked Cyrus and the Persians. What he didn't realize was the kingdom he would destroy was his own. And then, of course, justice comes upon Babylon for all of its wickedness as Cyrus conquers and destroys Babylon. Just a few years later, his son Cambyses conquers Egypt. And so Persia is an empire that stretches across the known world. Darius the king, you may recall, invaded Greece and was only stopped in desperate battles at Marathon and Salamis. This is a huge empire over hundreds of years with a vast armies and a great scope and being. And we sit and we wonder, how can we have any effect on the world? I want to put you in the place of an Israelite sitting down by the streams of Babylon, wondering, as they have said in Psalm 137, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Can you imagine the desperation? Well, maybe you can. Because perhaps you look out on the world and you feel very small. You hear about wars and rumors of wars. You hear about earthquakes and tsunamis. You wonder about currency manipulation. You wonder about conflict that might come. And you wonder why you're even here. How you can make any difference. We can feel very small. The truth of the matter is that you are small. You can't move kingdoms. You can't stop tornadoes or tsunamis. But the difference for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is that He is held in the hand of the one who can. The Lord God, 
Because you see, this is also a story, not only where we are small, but where God is big. Notice how it opens up in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, remember who Cyrus is. He is the conqueror of empires, not of cities, not of nations, but of empires. His empire stretches from India to Europe. He is the most powerful man in all of the world. And what the scripture tells us is that he has been placed at this place at this time by God. To meet God's ends. God is in charge not just of the sparrow, but of the empire as well. And God stirs up in him a desire to fulfill his word. And he makes this statement that at first sounds like he's a preacher. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Now, I think we need to understand here that Cyrus is very likely not a believer in the one and only God. Because, you see, we know from extra-biblical evidence there is a thing called the Cyrus Cylinder. You can imagine why it's called that, because it's a cylinder that has writing on it. And it is now stored in London. And it recounts the way Cyrus reigned. And the Babylonians decided that they would reign by squashing the individuality of all of the peoples who were under them. That's why the Israelites were transported out of Israel to Babylon. They wanted to make them nondescript. To use a modern analogy, the Babylonians were a bit like the Borg. They wanted to assimilate everyone into being Babylonian. Cyrus was a much more intelligent politician. What he wanted to do was to encourage and allow religions in each of these nations underneath him so that they would remain loyal and that they would be his servants in each of these provinces and nations. He knows the problem with Babylon, why they fell, and he wants an eternal empire. And so he not only allows, but he encourages religious expression. And so he acts for the Jews Nearly right away, you'll see, it's in the first year of his reign, he makes this proclamation. It is public and it is recorded. And we see here the wisdom of God. Cyrus is doing this of his will, for his own ends. But it is in the context of what God wills. God has ordained all of the circumstances God has even given Cyrus this wisdom. He has stirred up in his heart to do this. And it is not for Cyrus' sake. It is not for the Persian Empire's sake. It is for the sake of his people. And for his plan of redemption. Because the Lord is still working out now his plan to send a Messiah to save the world. And he has not forgotten it. And he will not let rebellion or disloyalty or sin by his people stand in the way of his plan. You see, God is at work here. God is in control. It was long ago prophesied. The prophet Isaiah, who prophesied before the destruction of Jerusalem, 
said this in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. Speaking of the Lord, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. You see, the Lord has planned and has spoken of this. The world is so put off by this that it has a theory saying that there are two authors of the book of Isaiah. That the first is before the Babylonian exile and the second is after because, of course, Isaiah couldn't know who Cyrus is. He couldn't. Persia wasn't even on the map then. How could he have known? But you see, he knew because God knew. And because God was planning. And God was setting the stage. And God would have his will to come to pass. One of the things that I think we need to learn from this book of Ezra is that there is no neutral view of history. History does not happen apart from the will and actions of God. It is not something that just sort of flows and happens and God looks in and intervenes every once in a while. History is part of God's plan of redemption and consummation. All that happens is according to His good will. Now, we don't understand each of the streams within that river. But God is in control. He's not surprised. We can trust Him, knowing that He is in control. He looks out for us. He is alive and active in history. And knowing that should give us confidence in a day and age in which it seems like everything is in turmoil. Because it is not. God is in control. The last thing that we see in this text is that this is also a story where promises are kept. How does all of this fit together, this, this story of failure and faithlessness by the Jews and the grand scope of history and the actions of Cyrus, how do they come together? Well, they come together by the Word of God. For you see, God had spoken by His prophet Ezekiel, and especially by His prophet Jeremiah. He had spoken words demanding repentance and warning of judgment, but also words of hope and return. You see, this was all happening that it would be fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 25. As he told the Israelites through Jeremiah that this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And again, in chapter 29, beginning at verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You see, this is the promise of God. I dare say that one of the dangers in modern evangelicaldom is to take that passage from Jeremiah and take it completely out of its context. And to say, I know the plans for you that are good and to be a hope. To give us some kind of vague feeling of wishful hopefulness. That things will turn out. It's kind of like the Bible's version of Annie. The sun will come up tomorrow. When in reality that is rooted in the promise of God. It will happen, not because we deserve it. Not because we need to have hope. But because God has spoken and He will carry through. This is why Daniel in Daniel 9 can be reminded and read this text and literally take out his calendar and say, it's almost here. It's almost 70 years. And fall on his knees and pray to the Lord for deliverance because God always keeps His Word. Do you trust the Lord to always keep His Word? When He promises that He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you rely upon that? When He declares to you that you are forgiven in Christ and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you live your life upon that promise? When He says He has a mansion prepared for you to dwell with Him forevermore. Do you trust Him in that promise? You see... He has promised that He will never leave us nor forsake us. But if we're realistic, the promise hits us in that area between fear and hope. We hope for the future, but we're afraid for the present, aren't we? And this is what's happening to the Israelites in Ezra Day. You can imagine what they would be saying. Well, the 70 years are here, and here's this declaration, and we can go home. Could you imagine the conversation in the home? Should we? We don't have a house anymore. What about a job? Where will we work? We don't even know if our family or relatives are there anymore. There could be enemies in the land. We'd have to risk everything. We'd have to travel for months just to get there. Can you imagine the fear that might have gripped them? You see, this promise called for action by believers. It called for a decision for them to know that there was trouble ahead, that there would be hardship, that there would be challenges, perhaps even death, but to know that in spite of all of that, they were to follow the Word of God. They did not know how they would survive. But they did know that God would be with them. And so they take this hope in the promise of God and they begin on their journey. And all sorts of Jews come together. Those from Judah, those from Benjamin, the the Levites, the priests, and they gather together. And you can imagine the scene. It's like the Exodus part two. As they go to their neighbors and they get all of this stuff for the journey. And they pack up the beasts and they get ready on a hot and dusty day and they're ready to travel back to the promised land. And then something interesting happens in conclusion here. There's this long section 
about the instruments in the temple. As, as one commentator puts it, God decides to give us a good dissertation on pots and pans. That's not much that you can get excited about, is it? Even if they're gold, pots and pans. But you could imagine as they come out and they're laid on the ground and they're burnished and cleaned. And you can imagine as they look at them and they think about how these will be used in the sacrifice of the temple. You see, they understand that God cares about all of the tiny details. He doesn't just think about the big picture. He doesn't just think about some people. He thinks about every person down to the individual implements of the temple he's preparing ahead of time. You have that, don't you? There are certain things that you care about the details of that, that demand your attention, maybe even if they shouldn't. For me, it's pens. There's a saying that goes around my house as I look for a pen and inevitably I know someone has taken it. And I carry it into the office. And as we're sitting in my office in a staff meeting, if, if we're getting ready and, and John needs to jot something down or Duncan needs to jot something down, I look at him and I say, that's my pen. I like that pen. Don't take my pen. And if it's missing, I, I have to go look for it because I'm pretty particular about my pens. I'm sure you have a similar thing. And you see, that is how God is with us. He cares not just about us, but all of the little details of our lives. Not just the grand scope. He is active in your life. He is active for you. And these Israelites, they pack up all of the pots and the pans and the utensils and everything, and they head off down the dusty trail. And the chapter ends in a very interesting way. It says... They were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And in a way, this encapsulates all of our journey of the church. It is a journey from Babylon, the city of man, who at the end of Scripture is described as the great enemy of the church. It is the city we must flee and not give in to. And they're going to the promised land, to the place where God is to be found in Jerusalem. And to be worshipped. Some of them probably wanted to stay. They had good jobs. They had friends. They had gardens. They had food. But they realized that they were on a journey. And it's like the journey that you're on tonight. The church does not depend on the city of man. Babylon will fall. Jerusalem may be burned. Rome may be sacked. Christian Europe may fall. America may not last, but the church goes on. Because the church is on a journey to the city of God. Where God dwells. Where the brightness of His presence is. Do you long for that? You see, we too are pilgrims. I like to imagine as they went that they sang. That they sang songs of encouragement. They sang songs of the greatness of God. And those songs of joy carried them through all of the heartache and the hardship that they had experienced and were afraid would experience. This is what the Lord does for us. He puts a song in our heart and joy in our hearts because He 
is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us pilgrims. Pilgrims who seek after your city. We ask, O Lord, that you would not only always be with us as you have promised, but that you would make us aware of it. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And now if you'd stand for the Lord's blessing. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.